This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. This week, what happens when you don't listen to a soothsayer and ignore your wife's bad dreams? Julius Caesar finds out when he's a really bad day on the Ides of March. brute! <laughs> Get you home! You blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things. Oh, you hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome. I hear a tongue shriller than all the music, cries Caesar. Speak! Caesar is turned to hear. Beware the eyes of man! Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears! Men that some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. All pity choked with custom of foul deeds, and Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge. With Arte by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry, Havoc, and let slip the dogs of war. All right, as always, we're going to start off with a short summary. How short? This is Julius Caesar, in one minute. Let's start the timer. Go. All is rotten in the state of ancient Rome. Julius Caesar is in charge, and though he's loved by the masses, some of the senators are plotting against him, including Cassius, who approaches Brutus, Caesar's trusted confidant, knowing that no plot can succeed without him. Brutus is wary, but after a late night meeting with Cassius and the other conspirators, he at last agrees that Caesar needs to be stopped. Beware the Ides of March, says the soothsayer, but Caesar ignores him. He also ignores Calpurnia, his wife, who has bad dreams while asleep on March 14th. Everyone goes to the Senate, a few knives are drawn, and Caesar is stabbed 33 times. At two Brute, he sputters before dying on the Senate floor. Mark Antony, Caesar's trusted confidant, is not involved in the conspiracy, but he publicly vows allegiance to the senators, even though he privately promises to let slip the dogs of war. The conspirators tell the public and for a time manage to sway the populace, but Brutus makes the crucial error of letting Mark Antony give a speech, and Antony, through his rhetoric, turns the mob against the conspirators. Chaos erupts, leading to war between the two factions. Cassius and Brutus find their friendship tested by the battle, especially when they begin to lose. Brutus's wife kills herself, Caesar's ghost makes an appearance, Mark Antony and his troops win the day, and Cassius and Brutus both throw themselves onto their swords. One of Shakespeare's finest and most enduring tragedies, Julius Caesar succeeds in overcoming that great problem for all writers of historical fiction. How do you tell a gripping story whose outcome is already known? Time and again, Shakespeare went to war with this problem, and time and again he won the day. History tells us that Richard II was deposed, but it's Shakespeare who tells us what Richard was thinking when he was locked away in the Tower of London. As a play, Julius Caesar isn't really all that different from the War of the Roses. A leader is removed from power through controversial means, and chaos erupts. But here Shakespeare shifts focus to the conspirators rather than the leaders who are deposed. The central relationship of the play is a masculine one. It is the dissolution of the friendship between Brutus and Cassius, which is Shakespeare's primary concern. In focusing on something so personal, Shakespeare is able to demonstrate the manner in which large events have a personal cost. It is this personal story, combined with the play's allegory-friendly plot, which has kept the play rambling about in our cultural consciousness for over 400 years. Shakespeare wastes little time in Julius Caesar, which is as lean and muscular a play as Othello and Macbeth, both of which he would write around the same time. Hamlet, for all its glory, is a play full of fat, but Julius Caesar moves like a bullet and, even if performed unaltered, remains one of Shakespeare's most technically proficient plays. 
there is surprisingly little exposition. We are only given a vague background on Caesar and Brutus, whose friendship must be close for that famed betrayal to have any depth. Little is known about Mark Antony, other than he's a loyal lapdog. All this lack of exposition is what allows the play to move with swift efficiency, so that within the first five minutes, Cassius is talking to Brutus about what is rotten in the state of Rome. I'll leave you. Brutus, I do observe you now of late. I have not from your eyes that gentleness and show of love as I was wont to have. You bear too stubborn and too strange a hand over your friend that loves you. Cassius, be not deceived. If I have veiled my look, I turn the trouble of my countenance merely upon myself. Vexed I am of late with passions of some difference, conceptions only proper to myself which give some soil, perhaps, to my behaviors. Cassius and Brutus begin the play as the closest of friends, but Cassius is the more nefarious of the two, and he knows how to use their friendship to get Brutus on his side. Now, various productions present Cassius as the true villain, and Brutus as a man who is merely duped into being part of the conspiracy. Having come to discuss the possibility of removing Caesar from power, Cassius already knows that this is something Brutus has contemplated, even though Brutus himself has never said it out loud. Brutus is a philosopher, and though he is ambitious, he is also full of sincere concern for the future of Rome. With a surgeon's skill, Cassius cuts through the moral objections and appeals to both these conflicting elements in Brutus's soul. Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. Brutus and Caesar. What should be in that Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours? Write them together. Yours is as fair a name. Sound them. It doth become the mouth as well. Weigh them. It is as heavy. Conjure with them. Brutus will start a spirit as soon as Caesar. Now, in the names of all the gods at once, upon what meat doth this our Caesar feed that he is grown so great? Age, thou art shamed. Rome, thou hast lost the breed of noble bloods. When went there by an age since the great flood, but it was famed with more than with one man? When could they say, till now, that talked of Rome, that her wide walks encompassed but one man? Brutus confirms that he has indeed been thinking these very things, and so the conspiracy has begun. The great difference between Cassius and Brutus is that Brutus is sincere in his devotion to doing what's right for Rome, while Cassius is sincere in his devotion to himself. Brutus's great fault is that he does not see Cassius's own flaws. He does not realize that his friend is more concerned with himself than with Rome. Even Caesar can see that Cassius has a, quote, lean and hungry look, end quote. He tells as much to Mark Antony, but Brutus sees none of this, and there is an echo of Othello and Iago in their friendship, in that, as an audience, we know that their relationship is not what it appears. Iago is duping Othello, and Cassius is doing the same to Brutus. Both result in someone's death, and all because Othello and Brutus are blinded by the trust they have for their closest friends. And yet, manipulative as Cassius is, Cassius is no Iago, for Iago is a nihilist whose friendship with the Moor of Venice is never sincere. Cassius, however, reveals true feelings of love and admiration for Brutus, and I'd suggest that while he knows he needs to manipulate Brutus, he does it for he cannot imagine a Rome without Brutus at his side. 
Cassius and the other conspirators no doubt believe that Brutus would be easy to control, but Brutus soon shows that philosophers often make the worst puppets. The problem with philosophers is that they can't stop thinking for themselves. When Cassius suggests they remove Antony at the same time as Caesar, Brutus objects. Let Antony and Caesar fall together. Our course will seem too bloody, Caius Cassius, to cut the head off and then hack the limbs like wrath in death and envy afterwards. For Antony is but a limb of Caesar. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers, Caius. It is Antony and not Caesar who becomes the wedge that really drives Cassius and Brutus apart. Iago managed to turn Othello against Michael Cassio, but Cassius isn't able to turn Brutus against Antony no matter how hard he tries. Cassius is rightly suspicious of Antony's peacemaking behavior in the wake of Caesar's death, but he can't convince Brutus to be the same. Brutus, a word with you. You know not what you do. Do not consent that Antony speak in his funeral. Know you how much the people may be moved by that which he will utter? By your pardon. I will myself into the pulpit first and show the reason of our Caesar's death. What Antony shall speak, I will protest he speaks by leave and by permission. And that we are contented Caesar shall have all true rites and lawful ceremonies. <laughs> it shall advantage more than do us wrong. I know not what may fall. I like it not. Brutus, sadly, has another flaw besides his inability to mistrust Mark Antony. He also lacks a talent for public speaking. Rhetoric is an important trait in Shakespeare's leaders, look what it did for Henry V, and Mark Antony has it, something which Cassius probably knew. Brutus is alright, but from the moment he starts talking to the public, we can tell his speeches are not destined to become the stuff of legend. Romans, countrymen, and lovers, hear me for my cause, and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor, and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. This is clever to be sure, but it's far too complex for the masses. Brutus does come around, and eventually he gives the mob a slogan they can put onto their hats. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more! <laughs> Mark Antony, seeing that Brutus has won their acclaim, has his work cut out for him, but he triumphs in turning the tables with a speech in which he trolls the conspirators better than anyone has ever done in the modern age. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones, so let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all, Honorable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. Mark Antony is essentially a secondary figure who would be utterly immemorable if not for this famed speech, which has its effect on the play's other great secondary character, namely the mob. 
The mob is this unruly assortment of Roman citizens who act as a singular, capricious entity. Caesar knew how to control the mob, and Antony no doubt saw in Caesar a mentor worth emulating. One can assume that they learned their tricks on the battlefield, where directing a hundred minds to a single purpose had to be par for the course. Shakespeare's Brutus doesn't seem to have had such experience. Now, he's echoing history here, though only the scholars would know it, for the real Brutus fought against Caesar in 49 BC and was captured, whereupon he was released because Caesar thought Brutus might be his son. Now, if there's a flaw in Julius Caesar, it's that Shakespeare did not exploit this little piece of historical minutiae for all its possible dramatic worth. It definitely would explain the shocked et tu brute uttered by Caesar before he died, but in any case, Shakespeare's Brutus is a man more of complicated thoughts than military ones, and it's something which the Roman mob ultimately has no time for. I suspect Cassius, who knew his friend all too well, understood this great weakness and hoped to shield Brutus from it, but Brutus is stubborn, and so he commits his tragic error. He not only lets Antony speak, but he also leaves the scene, so he's not able to stop things when they get out of control. Yet hear me, countrymen, yet hear me speak. Why, friends, you go to do you know not what? Wherein hath Caesar thus deserved your loves? Alas, you know not. I must tell you then, you have forgot the will I told you of. Here is the will. And under Caesar's seal, to every Roman citizen he gives, to every several man, 75 drachmas. Oh, most noble Caesar, we'll revenge his death! Once the mob sides with Mark Antony, we never see the people on the side of Brutus again. For the rest of the play, Shakespeare ensures that Brutus becomes increasingly isolated. The fourth act finds him already a widower after Portia has killed herself, and he's also attacked by his good friend Cassius. Earlier, we saw Brutus fail to take Cassius' advice regarding Mark Antony. Now we find that he has condemned Cassius' ally, the corrupt Lucius Pella, who was caught taking bribes. The result is a heated exchange. Let me tell you, Cassius, you yourself are much condemned to have an itching palm, to sell and march your offices for gold to undeservers. I, an itching palm? You know that you are Brutus that speaks this, or by the gods, this speech were else your last. The name of Cassius honors this corruption, and chastisement doth therefore hide his head. Chastisement? Remember March. The Ides of March, remember. Did not great Julius bleed for justice' sake? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? What? Shall one of us that struck the foremost man of all this world but for supporting robbers, shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes and sell the mighty space of our large honours for so much trash as may be grasped thus? I'd rather be a dog and bathe the moon than such a Roman. Brutus, bait not me. I'll not endure it. You forget yourself to hedge me in. I am a soldier, I. Older in practice, abler than yourself to make conditions. Go to. You are not Cassius. I am. I say you are not. Urge me no more. I shall forget myself. Have mind upon your health. Tempt me no further. Away, slight man. Is it possible? Cassius thought he could manipulate Brutus, but Brutus the philosopher is pricked by his conscience and will not be so easily handled. 
This entire scene is really one of Shakespeare's finest, for it demonstrates two men whose conflict is at once ideological and personal. Cassius, horrified that he can no longer control Brutus, pulls out every error in his quiver in an attempt to reclaim his superiority. Oh, did I say arrow? My mistake. I meant to say knife. There is my dagger. And here my naked breast. Within a heart dearer than Pluto's mine, richer than gold. If that thou beest a Roman, take it forth. I, that denied thee gold, will give my heart. Strike as thou didst at Caesar. For I know when thou didst hate him worse, thou lovedst him better than ever thou lovedst Cassius. Sheathe your dagger. Be angry when you will. It shall have scope. Do what you will. Dishonor shall be humor. Oh, Cassius, you are yoked with a lamb that carries anger as the flint bears fire, who much enforced shows a hasty spark, and straight is cold again. Cassius's bluff pays off. Brutus pulls back, and for a moment it seems that the two will reconcile. But this is merely the calm before the storm. Brutus confesses that his wife has killed herself, an astonishing admission which colors all that came before it. The blunt coldness with which Brutus discusses his Portia's death reveals just what conspiracy has done to him. The philosopher, fighting for an ideal, has left everything else behind. Cicero is dead, and by that order of prescription. Had you your letters from your wife, my lord? No, Masala. Nor nothing in your letters writ of her? Nothing, Masala. That, methinks, is strange. Why ask you? Hear you aught of her and yours? No, my lord. Now, as you are a Roman, tell me true. Then, like a Roman, bear the truth I tell. For certain, she is dead, and by strange manner. Why, farewell, Portia. We must die, Masala. With meditating that she must die once, I have the patience to endure it now. Portia's suicide has shown Brutus that there is a personal cost to the conspiracy and drives him onward. The only way her death will have any meaning is if he and his army win the day. Driven to prove that he and the conspirators were right, Brutus becomes almost reckless in command. Once again, he ignores Cassius's advice and orders the troops to meet Mark Antony's army on the fields of Philippi. Cassius has lost the argument once again. And yet, here he veers away from those similarities he may have had to Iago. He appears to be sincerely stricken by his role in what has happened to Brutus. He has helped turn the philosopher into a fatalist who cannot even pause to mourn the death of his wife. Their final meeting is a bitter farewell. Both men seem to be aware, in a way that Caesar was not, that they have reached their final day. But this same day must end that work the Ides of March begun, and whether we shall meet again I know not. Therefore, our everlasting farewell take. Forever and forever farewell, Cassius. If we do meet again, why, we shall smile. If not, why then this parting was well made. Forever and forever farewell, Brutus. If we do meet again, we'll smile indeed. 
If not, it is true this parting was well made. Although Cassius dies with Caesar's name on his lips, he is driven to suicide by the mistaken belief that Brutus has been taken prisoner. As in the end of Romeo and Juliet, Brutus discovers the body. As in Romeo and Juliet, Brutus will eventually stab himself through the heart. The similarity is really far too striking to ignore, and if someone wanted to suggest to me that a homoerotic relationship existed between Brutus and Cassius, I'm not so sure I'd object. Their friendship is tried by their crimes and ultimately defeated, but there's no denying the sincerity of their love for one another. Brutus's suicide is not immediate. He takes to the field at last, where he is defeated. Romeo's suicide is melodramatic. All he's lost is a girl he's known for less than a week, but Brutus has lost his best friend, his wife, and his ideals. Which of them meant the most to him is something we can only leave to actors to decide. Shakespeare has a great deal of fun with Julius Caesar's inherent dramatic irony. Until Act 3, Scene 1, the audience is always one step ahead of the characters because we know what they do not. Caesar will die, and Brutus will be one of the men to kill him. Knowing he can't create dramatic tension over the conspiracy, Shakespeare has no choice but to let us in on the joke. Caesar! Ha! Who calls? Let every noise be still. Peace yet again. Who is it in the press that calls on me? I hear a tongue shriller than all the music, cries Caesar. Speak! Caesar is turned to hear. Beware the Ides of March! What man is that? A soothsayer bids you beware the Ides of March. Set him before me. Let me see his face. Fellow, come from the throng. Look upon Caesar. What sayest thou to me now? Speak once again. Beware the Ides of March. He is a dreamer. Let us leave him. Shakespeare gives Caesar plenty of chances to escape, which is much like the cat toying with a mouse right before the execution. Caesar's wife, Calpurnia, fears for his life after a series of bad dreams, but he dismisses the portents. Psychics warn him not to leave the house, but he dismisses this too. For a few moments, he reverses himself in order to keep Calpurnia happy, but Decius Brutus, one of the conspirators, quickly reinterprets Calpurnia's dream. This dream is all a misinterpreted. It was a vision, fair and fortunate. Your statue spouting blood in many pipes in which so many smiling Romans bathed signifies that from you great Rome shall suck reviving blood and that great men shall press for tinctures, stains, relics and cognizance. This by Calpurnia's dream is signified and so on the Ides of March, Caesar gets one final chance when Artemidorus tries to warn him of the conspiracy. Caesar, playing the part of the selfless leader, refuses to hear the petition. Caesar! The Ides of March are come? I, Caesar, but not gone. Hail, Caesar. Read the schedule. Trebonius doth desire you to uh, read at your best leisure this, his humble suit. Oh, Caesar, read mine first. For mine's a suit that touches Caesar nearer. Read it, great Caesar. What touches us ourselves shall be last, sir. Delay not. When it comes to the supernatural, Macbeth gets all the glory, but Julius Caesar can be a wonderfully spooky play as well, for it is filled with storms, signs, psychics, and ghosts. It's possible, and probably correct, to interpret the appearance of Caesar's ghost as a dream cooked up by Brutus's guilt, but that still doesn't diminish what is in effect a supernatural play. 
like Macbeth's witches, the conspirators meet in thunder, lightning, and in rain, and the storm is so severe that nature turns in on itself. Calpurnia reports that a lion whelped in the streets, and graves were destroyed, yielding up the dead. All signs point to the notion that Caesar's assassination is against the natural order of things, which was surely a safe thing for Shakespeare to convey in an England whose queen had been the subject of equally evil plots. And while his fascination with these things would reach its zenith in Macbeth and later The Tempest, Julius Caesar marks more proof of Shakespeare's continued obsession with the occult, or more specifically, with its dramatic possibilities. Within this world of soothsayers and prophetic dreams, Julius Caesar himself stands as an outlier, a character who always attempts to portray practicality. For him, a soothsayer's warnings and his wife's bad dreams aren't enough reason to fear the Ides of March. Had he been anyone else, we might agree that he was being sensible. But Shakespeare implies that Caesar's death was inevitable, and the tyrant died not because of the conspiracy itself, but because Caesar was blind to the warnings which were all around him. His death leads, of course, to chaos. After Mark Antony turns the mob against Brutus and his many friends, we are shown a scene of carnage in which the mob kills Cinna the poet, mistaking him for Cinna the conspirator. The mob, represented by all those nameless citizens, is fickle and easily swayed, something which everyone who has ever tried to run a government knows firsthand. This makes Julius Caesar a unique play to perform in a modern democratic country, for it implies that the common herd, those blocks, those stones, those worse than senseless things, as they are called in the play, will always succumb to their baser passions and cannot be trusted. This idea is what drove Orson Welles' famed 1937 production, which drew parallels to the fascist governments of the time. Wells sought to demonstrate that the masses can always be turned if the right person, or rather the wrong one, spurs them on. It's easy then to wonder whose side we're supposed to be on in Julius Caesar. As with Richard III, our central characters are ostensibly villains who want to upset the natural order. On the other hand, if Caesar really is a tyrant, some would argue that all means are just if they ultimately bring him down. This begs the question, is Brutus a hero or a villain? What is the real tragedy of Julius Caesar? Is it that Caesar dies or that the revolution fails? Was Shakespeare in support of revolutions, or was he advising us that it's better to maintain the status quo? Canny that he was, and Shakespeare's politics were always carefully disguised, Shakespeare leaves it up to us to decide. Henry V, that other play that producers love to make political, cannot truly escape its place either in history or in the Henriad. But Julius Caesar sits alone and is endlessly malleable in its political implications. If it easily slips into allegory, it's probably because even in Shakespeare's time, it was an allegory for England itself. The difference between a tyrannical Caesar and a tyrannical queen was probably not so great to many of Elizabeth's enemies, and Shakespeare's play could have been a warning that nothing good comes of stabbing the ruler on the Senate floor. On the other hand, it could also have been suggesting that if the cause is just, so is the revolt. That Shakespeare never comes down firmly on one side or the other of this question is why Julius Caesar transcends its own historical context in a way Shakespeare's other histories do not. Its ability to be interpreted in a multitude of ways is unequaled, and this is what makes it an endlessly versatile and fascinating play. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. 
Popular as it is, there are countless adaptations of Julius Caesar, and the fan of this play is never without options, but I'm going to focus on three films made between 1950 and 1970. It's an odd quirk of history that two of these films feature Charlton Heston, who seemed to love playing Mark Antony so much that he did it three times, when one includes the 1972 film of Antony and Cleopatra. Now, if you like seeing Heston in a loincloth, then the 1950 version is for you, for the costume designer gave him so little to wear in the opening scene that one suspects they'd run out of money for the wardrobe. And this makes sense, since according to my research on the internet, Heston was the only cast member who was paid. Now, the 1950 version suffers from other oddities, including really odd close-ups, unnecessary flashbacks, and some stilted acting by a group of mostly neophyte actors who seem to be acting for the stage rather than the camera. The movie, which can be watched on YouTube, trucks along at a rapid speed thanks to a lot of edits which trim the play down to its barest bones. Cassius is the lean and hungry villain that Caesar seems to think he is, and Brutus is portrayed as the innocent, caught up in all his manipulations. As for Heston, I prefer his funeral oration this time around to the one he would make 20 years later in the 1970 version, although this might be because that version left such a bad taste in my mouth that everything around it is sullied. There, Jason Robards is our man Brutus, and he's dead on arrival, giving a leaded performance that makes one wish Caesar would listen to his wife and stay home, thus ending the movie early. Caesar is played by Sir John Gilgood, and while he's a fine Caesar, he's not enough to save this production, whose singular distinguishing feature is that it's the only feature film version of Julius Caesar to be done in full color. Now this leaves only the 1953 version, which, I'm happy to say, is the only one we really need. Marlon Brando gets all the press for appearing as Mark Antony, but of course this film really belongs to James Mason as Brutus and John Gilgood, who this time appears as Cassius. Now, the film does a great job highlighting the friendship of the two men, and this really anchors the entire production, maintaining a human story that sits at the heart of all the pomp and circumstance. As for Brando, he surprised everyone in the 1950s, who at the time knew him only for his mumbling performances in films like The Men, and he surprised me with a clear and often clever interpretation. The funeral oration is, of course, the key moment of Julius Caesar, for if Antony isn't convincing, the rest of the story never makes sense. Brando, I'm happy to say, succeeds and helps drive the movie to its tragic conclusion. Now, the movie is imperfect. It takes out the scene where Sin of the Poet is murdered, and as always, the women get short shrift, but it's a smart rendering of the play and still holds up more than 50 years after it was made. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next week... One of the greatest rom-coms ever written, it's As You Like It. For more information about this podcast, you can always visit my show page at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. And hey, while you're there, why not check out the rest of the website to see what else I do with my time. You can find information about how to get your hands on my novel, The Thunder of Giants. It's a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world much too small to contain them. And it's available from St. Martin's Press. That's it for Shakespeare Unbarred. 20 plays down, 18 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play, let's go and cough through it.